The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Coming up after 10.15, our LGBTQ panel, we discuss Pride. Our Pride Parade is happening in August, but Pride around the world, plus uh, Straight Pride. Yep, we'll talk about that. HIV, American politics, and all kinds of stuff that comes up when we uh, talk to our LGBTQ panel. But first... Time to check out our inbox. Your texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion at 514-800. Let me answer some of your questions sent to me by email, Lori at drlori.com, or you can just go straight to my website, drlori.com, and fill out the form. I will be very happy to answer your questions at the beginning of every show, except for Tuesdays, where I spend the whole hour uh, answering your questions. So please feel free to send them along. I listen to your show almost every night. I find it interesting. To make a long story short, I'm celebrating my 10th wedding anniversary uh, coming up. My husband and I have uh, two kids. He's, uh, they are the love of our lives. Uh, just for the record, I'd like to mention that my husband is a very good man. He's a good husband, friend, lover, confidant, and father. The only issue that keeps coming up in our relationship is that I find that he's not very affectionate. When I mention it to him, he always says, tells me that things can be, cannot be like when we first started dating. I don't expect him uh, to be all cuddly, so I agree with that, but I do expect some form of affection. By the way, I come from a very affectionate family. He tells me that that's who he is, and he can't be something he's not. He says you are, you are either affectionate or not. I totally disagree. I think he can become more affectionate. It's the only cloud in an almost perfect union. The cloud is always there, and if we don't settle the matter, it will always keep coming up. What do you suggest? That's a very good question. I have to tell you, one that often comes up in sessions with, uh, with couples, because the way that we are affectionate, so if we grew up in a very affectionate home, it is very natural for us, uh, especially if we saw our parents being affectionate to each other, it's, it just it comes naturally to, to be affectionate. And so we assume that other people should show their love in the same way. And that's just unfortunately not the case. There are some people who did not grow up with a lot of affection or did not see a lot of affection. And so it's not natural to them. Not that they don't love the person. They just have other ways of showing their love. And I I talked about this, I think, last week, a book called um, something, I don't remember the exact title, but it's The Five Languages of Love, basically, that looks at how do we express love in, in a relationship. So for some people, it is affection. For others, it's by words. For others, it's acts of service, like doing things for your partner making a lunch for your partner, being available, uh, offering to drive your partner somewhere, like all of these things, washing their car. Like these are acts of love, and this is another way of affection. Affection isn't always physical. Now, your partner may um, put, certainly can put a little bit more effort, even if it doesn't come so naturally uh, to him, like, 
maybe hold your hand, but he just may be, he may have to be reminded of that. Um, but I would ask you, uh, when you initiate affection, like let's say you, you start holding his hand or you go up to him to cuddle with him, does he go along with it or does he turn you away? Because to me, that would be two different things. He may not initiate the hand holding or initiate the cuddling because of that because it's 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 not coming naturally uh, to him, but that doesn't mean he he won't accept it um, from you. So I think you have to be careful to not judge the whole relationship based on that, and not use this as the thing that that tears you apart. When, as you say, uh, everything else is perfect, an almost perfect union is the only cloud. Don't let it cloud your relationship. Understand where how he expresses his uh, love to you and keep reminding yourself that you're in a good relationship and uh, there are other ways to show love. So look for those other ways and I would recommend that book. I think it would uh, certainly help you in terms of accepting in in many ways. I recently suggested to my fiance that we take a marriage preparation course. This annoyed him for some reason. He thinks couples who take those courses shouldn't get married if they need help before the wedding. I'd rather learn how to deal with problems now while things are still fresh and exciting than when we've been together so long we take each other for granted. I'd even take it further and take refresher courses once every few years. My fiancé is totally opposed, and though I want to spend the rest of my life with him, if we can't compromise on this, I wonder if we ever will. How can I convince him to see it my way? I wonder why he's so opposed, and I, I think it's a really um, it's a really good question. I personally believe in pre-marriage uh, preparation classes because we have we often have these expectations of marriage and this thinking that once you get married, everything will be okay, right? Like everything is good. Marriage is the key to that happiness, and if if you love each other enough like, you know, love is enough. Well, love is not enough, unfortunately, because love doesn't give you the skills you need to have a healthy relationship. Communication skills. How do you handle tough uh, questions, tough problems that come up, situations? How do you deal with money? How do you deal with kids? How do you, with parenting, with in-laws? Like, these are some of the bigger things that you don't see at the beginning of a relationship or at the beginning of a marriage, but you certainly... Those things will come up. So if you can learn the communication skills ahead of time, you could be saving yourself a lot of heartache. And as a, I'm a marriage counselor, but I do see an awful lot of couples that have the same thinking you do, that, hey, let's just go for prevention. Let's just go, even though we're not in crisis, there's, we don't have any major issues, let's go see a, a couple's therapist just to just to make sure we're on track and that we have the skills necessary. And I think that's brilliant. I think it's a, it, it's even a, what a great gift to give a, a couple who's get, gotten engaged or even as a wedding gift to be able to uh, just sit down with a neutral uh, party and talk about, like bring up all the issues. How are you going to handle religion and how are you going to handle uh, what's, what schools? And especially now we're seeing a lot of interfaith uh, connections and interfaith marriages. So there's a, a lot of potential, there's a lot of potential good that will come of this. So I just don't know how 
to convince him to see it your way. This is an attitude thing, which I think, uh, sadly, you know, you're right to question, like, is he going to be that stubborn on a lot of things? Like, if you say, this is something I believe in, this is something I want, like, what happens if you say that? Like, forget the we, say I. I want this. I, I, I think it's important for me to be comfortable walking down the aisle and see how he responds to this. But if he doesn't care, doesn't seem to care about how you think, like, if he won't, if he won't go with you simply because just even if it's just to make you happy uh, and, and because it's you value it and it's important to you, you're right. I don't know how he will handle other issues that come up. Will he just say, you know, this is what I think and that's it. Uh, no compromising there. So maybe you need to talk to somebody yourself and figure that out. Uh, coming up, we'll talk uh, to our LGBTQ panel. Lots of issues to uh, to discuss around the world when it comes to L- LGBTQ issues. Uh, HIV is one of them. Uh, HIV is, uh, well, I'll share some of the, the latest uh, research that's come up uh, around that. We still need to be able to talk about it. Uh, Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. HIV, pride, American politics. Oh, what a mix. With our LGBTQ panel tonight, we've got Bill Ryan, who's a McGill professor and LGBTQ advocate, along with Charles Lowe, a.k.a. Dolly Blonde, who's a singer, songwriter, performer. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I want to start off with a couple of questions that have come in uh, about LGBTQ and anything related to this. Uh, Hi, Dr. Lori. Great show as usual. Will you be discussing HIV-1? I heard this is a new medical condition. Uh, HIV-1, no cure. Is there have you heard anything, Bill? Well, the the word that's being used invokes fairly Um, familiar vocabulary, there were two models of HIV transmission, model one and model two, and I think that's what may be being referred to, and they were more common in different parts of the world. So Ah. um, some, uh, one model um, was in the West where primarily um, gay men were first affected by HIV back in the late 70s, early 80s, and in those days we called it AIDS, and then model two was more um, developing countries and uh, the, the global south. And it was more associated with actual heterosexual behavior and uh, intravenous drug use. Okay. Um, they're, they're, they, are th- they may be referring as well to strains that are more resistant to treatment. Yes. But those, that's a fairly rare phenomenon. Actually, in the last 30 years, we've, we're almost at the point where we could say that we're close to a cure that will eliminate HIV. And at this point, we've got it pushed back very far. In fact, some provinces now are reporting decreasing rates of HIV transmission among um, gay men, for example. Wow. Well, then this leads me to this research that I saw the headline. I said, oh, we got to talk about this. Scientists say they've cured HIV in animals. Now they want to start testing on humans. Scientists from Temple University and the University of Nebraska say they have successfully eliminated the HIV virus from live mice in a groundbreaking procedure that combines gene editing and antiretroviral medication. And now they're on to uh, testing this in uh, in humans. So that's really promising. Yes. I would yes. say so. Yeah. And every time we get towards human testing, that's not a guarantee that it will work in humans. 
but it just means that every step that's been taken up to then is shown to be successful. And, and that's where we're heading. We're heading towards a vaccine that's effective, a cure treatments now today in 2019 in countries where their access to the treatments are extremely effective now in rendering HIV non-transmittable from one person to another, which is which you is know, huge. Well, we would have considered right. that a miracle 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Well, this uh, texter writes in, uh, how do people with HIV have safe, safe sex without infecting an HIV-free partner? Is it illegal in Montreal for someone with HIV to have sex with someone without telling that person that they are infected? Is it a criminal offense? Do you know anything about that? Okay, so there are, there are a couple of questions in there that I think are important to sort out. One is, is that someone who is HIV positive, who knows they're HIV positive and who is in treatment, um, for, the, for the vast majority of people who are positive on treatment, the treatment renders HIV what we call undetectable, which means that it's impossible to see it in quantities large enough to infect another person. Right. So um, the treatments today and people who follow the treatment regime um, are, are incapable of transmitting HIV to another person. That's the first element of that. Now I've forgotten what the second aspect of the oh, question shoot. was. Oh, are people obliged right, to tell? Right, right, right. Um, Is it a criminal offense if they... There's a debate going on right now in Canada about the criminalization of HIV, and um, the federal government has committed itself to modernizing the um, laws related to HIV and HIV transmission. At this point, the Supreme Court declared a number of years ago, and that's still the standing law, that if you had HIV and you, you had to be either undetectable or using a condom, in order not to tell, undetectable and using a condom, excuse me, in order not to be obliged to tell your partner that you are HIV positive. So you need to have both. So but you need yes. to have been, on, you need to be on the medication. Yes, undetect and, and rendered undetectable. Okay. And using a condom. And using a condom. Or and you have to tell would, your partner. Or, okay, otherwise it is not a criminal offense. But right. if you don't use the condom, right. then it can be considered a criminal right. offense. Right, and they, what, it's what they call the, the belt and suspenders law, that you have to have these two elements present at all times. Right. And uh, the law is not reflecting where we are at in terms of medical treatments and uh, the what now the federal government has declared that if you are HIV positive on treatments, you are incapable of infecting another person with HIV. So the law has to sort of re reflect that reflect, now, and right. it doesn't mm. yet. Okay, Charles, for, as a young, you're a young person here, a young gay, gay male, <laughs> I try. <laughs> Is this an issue or a question that gets asked? Like, how does... Fortunately, there is a a changing of tides in terms of young people's and young queer people's uh, attitudes and mindsets towards people living with HIV and people who are undetectable. Of course, there there has been a stigma around people living with HIV for ever since cases started first popping mm -hmm. up. And now with the uh, super effectiveness of antiviral medication and with uh, the use of PrEP, which is now widespread. I myself am on PrEP. The discussion around... So just explain PrEP to our listeners who don't Yeah, know. so PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a drug uh, taken to reduce, reduce your risk of contracting HIV. Uh, I don't know the percentile, but it's fairly high. And to zero percent, basically. Exactly. It's pretty much... Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. A lot of people jokingly call it the gay birth control, but... <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Kind to, put of, it, yeah. to put it in context of people who right. don't necessarily know what this drug basically does. Um, and these changing tides of attitudes towards people who are HIV positive, who are undetectable. Unfortunately, there's still stigma out there. There will be people who say, no, I, I'm not going to have sex with a person who is HIV positive. There, there's a mindset that they're dirty. There's a mindset. All of these are totally unfounded. All of these are so uh, 
ancient in their their ways and their, their mm-hmm. thinking. And but you're but you're out there dating. So how does it negotiated now? Is it discussed? Is it do people ask you like if you're going to go on a date with someone? Do they say to you are you on, are you on prep? Are you? They can. They okay. can, yeah. Especially if the, if it's a if it's a hookup situation, it's it can be a question to say, "Hey, are you on prep?" Yeah, cool. No, are you on prep? No, it's fine. It, even even if you're not on prep, it's a drug that's relatively privileged in certain situations. Not everybody has has the financial means to go on prep. Not oh, everybody okay, has. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody has the insurance to go on it. Not everybody is in a situation where they would think that they require it even if you're Mm -hmm. on it even if you're not on it if you're in a relationship with a person who's HIV positive you can be on it you can not be on it again it all comes down to your personal preference I I might add in Quebec prep is covered by the pharmaceutical regime Ah, so that um, it makes it more accessible we know that this is one of the reasons why rates of HIV infection have started going down in certain provinces and states where prep is widely available because people are basically eliminating the risk. But have I got a moment just to talk about vocabulary a second yes, before I take a break? Yes, please, please. Because there are several acronyms that we use today. One of them is PrEP. So PrEP, as has been explained, is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's a treatment that you take before you might be exposed to HIV right. in order to protect yourself from right. it. There's also PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis which is a treatment that's accessible in emergency rooms and at family doctor's clinics if you've had a high-risk activity, for example, a condom breaks. Uh, or you didn't use a condom. That's like the emergency birth control yes. pill. Mm-hmm. Within 72 hours, you get to an emergency or to a clinic, and they will put you on a regime for one month, and your chances of having been infected by that incident, if the person or the blood you came into contact with was HIV infected, because that's a prerequisite. If that was HIV, in, if that person or blood was HIV infected, then um, if you're on uh, PEP, your chances of being infected by that incident are reduced to zero. Wow. So there's kind of pre and post coverage now. And also for people who are HIV positive, the medications, what they call antiretroviral therapies, are so effective that um, people live normal lives and they are unable to transmit HIV to their partners. what's that one called? That's um, antiretroviral therapies. But there's no... Well, it could be sometimes it's called treatment as prevention. Treatment or TASP, treatment as prevention. Is it it the big cocktail of drugs that was No, the cocktails don't really exist anymore. Now it's a pill, basically, for most people. It's one pill. Yeah. As long as the pill... Some people have low tolerance for certain uh, molecules in some of the treatments. So you're followed regularly. Every three months, you have blood tests taken to make sure that your major organs are functioning as they should. Um, and for most people, they do, so they can stay on these medications uh, for very long periods of time. And now they're actually testing um, non-pill forms of medications, so that you might go for an injection once every three months, for oh, example. Wow, even better. Mm-hmm. These things have also reduced the rates of sexually transmitted infections because you're followed up so closely at medical clinics. You're getting blood tests done every three months. There, there are also now interventions that are more effective in terms of treating other forms of sexually transmitted infections that are being caught. People might be having a little bit more sex because it's right. a little bit less, it's a little it's a little safer to have sex and people are less afraid to have sex today. But they're also being followed much more closely, so they're catching other mm-hmm. STIs. Yeah. Right. PrEP does not protect against sexually transmitted infections. Yeah, I think that's really important that we, we specify that, right? It's like mm-hmm. against one. Right. It's like right. getting the HPV vaccine. Right. It's against HPV, but not against chlamydia and, and everything else. Exactly. So it doesn't right. mean you wouldn't use a condom. It would right. just... You be- would feel it's a safety thing for you. It's your right. your own safety net. And because this is the LGBT show, it might be really important to mention that the HPV vaccine is also available for um, gay men 
And um, even though it may not be part of public policy in some provinces, gay men are strongly encouraged to get the HPV vaccine as well because it prevents, as it's shown to have been in women, it's very effective in preventing um, cancers related to um, the uh, HPV virus. So what we know now is that uh, HIV is going down in the gay and uh, bi population, but uh, wait till you hear where it's going up or not going down. So I'm sure you'll be curious to hear with our LGBTQ panel coming up. After. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Well, on our LGBTQ panel, we have heard that HIV rates are steadily dropping in the gay and uh, bi populations. But interestingly, HIV rates are holding steady in straight people. So what's different? What, what message are they not getting? Well, I think we could probably say historically from the beginning of the epidemic that those people who weren't in the gay male community um, tended not to take the HIV epidemic seriously and considered that it wasn't their issue. And, of course, when that happens, rates increase. And we know that condom use among, uh, say, heterosexual young people and heterosexual couples was never as high as it was among gay male couples. Right. And remember, gay men never needed to use condoms for contraception. This was purely something very artificial and outside of their sexual experience and needs. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So the co- introduction of the condom, the use of the condom, was a radically important public health measure that was, that was adopted within the gay male community and was one of the greatest changes in public health behavior ever documented. Um, the urgency wasn't seen in the same way within the heterosexual community, and so there's still a lot of denial, Yeah, a lot of denial. And um, if you look at behaviors, you know, even, even when we were talking about PrEP before the break, but um, I was involved in conversations around, will we bring PrEP to Canada and how will, be, will it be introduced? And a lot of older gay men were saying, this is a bad thing. We've changed our behaviors. We've done all this work. You know, it shouldn't be just about taking a pill. It should be about changing our behaviors. That's true, And those discussions Mm -hmm. just haven't taken place in the same way in the heterosexual community around sexual responsibility, around behaviors, around... Like, I've never heard a a straight person say they've been on PrEP or that they take PrEP. it, It is possible, but if you... If you um, go outside of certain gay male cultures, most people would have no idea what PrEP even Even means means. or is. Right. And it's been available now for several years. Huh. Interesting. So the straight population has something to learn about condom use and everything else. But I think that public health has a responsibility, too, that it hasn't been taken seriously, and that is to promote promote this um, PrEP, for example, as a tool, uh, among others, to be used to, to reduce the rates of people. HIV transmission. It's about mm-hmm. sex. Yes. It's not about orientation anymore. It's right. about sexuality and it's about yeah. just unprotected sex yeah. all around. Otherwise, you wouldn't see uh, HIV in the straight community. I mean, like yeah. it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. And the myth that like safe sex, no sex, no sex is safe. It's all, there's risk no matter what you no do. No matter what you do. Exactly. exactly. It's safer sex. Is, mm-hmm. is we exactly. started to change language mm-hmm. around that because there's no such thing as Absolute completely safety. safe sex. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because of all the, uh, you know, there's other um, 
illnesses or other diseases that you get that are skin to skin. So mm. you can't protect the condom won't protect you. I have a couple of questions here for you. So this one says, uh, do black LGBTQA1 people here in Montreal have their own independent community groups? I understand that there is lots of racism against them in Quebec because they are black and gay. This person had written also um, that within the gay community even. Uh, racism within the, the gay community. So I don't know if... Well, there, there, there are two questions there. The first one, the answer is yes, there are organizations um, that have been more or less active and more or less visible depending on sort of who the volunteers are that are, that are, that are bearing the brunt of the work. But there is an organization called um, uh, Arc-en-Ciel d'Afrique, okay. which, or African Rainbow, which reaches out to um, pe LGBTQI people from the Caribbean and, of Caribbean and African origin, a very active organization founded by a young person who went to Pride a couple of times on arriving in Montreal from Africa and didn't see anyone who looked like them at all in the parade. Wow. And four years later had hundreds and hundreds of people ah. marching with Arc-en-Ciel d'Afrique. <laughs> And um, the second part of that question, I think, is is just the acknowledgement that if racism exists in the world, it exists in the gay LGBTQ community as well, right. unfortunately. And I'm always sad to say something like that because I think that oppressed people should be the first people not, not to, to oppress universally <laughs> oppress, but it doesn't always work that way. So, yes, there is racism. Um, but um, there's racism, there's uh, misogyny, there is all the isms that exist in the world exist within the LGBT communities as well. And they need to be acknowledged. Absolutely. Uh, that's the voice of Professor Bill Ryan, who is uh, an LGBTQ advocate and McGill professor. Charles Lowe is with us as well, who's a singer, songwriter, and performer, also known as Dolly Blonde. You can check out his performances online. Uh, so this person says, hi, Dr. Lee, to your panel. What can straight people do to help with the stigma around the LGBTQ community? I think that's a pretty good question. In terms of how can we be allies, or how, what can we do? It's fine to say, you know, we stand up for you, but what does that actually look like? Yeah. Uh, first of all, pay us. Give us all your money. <laughs> I said it once, and I said it again. Um, the go to your one, shows. Go to my say. shows. Buy my CDs. Uh, no, um, I would say don't necessarily speak for us, but allow us to speak for ourselves as heterosexual people, as cisgendered people. As white people, we have these pedestals that we're given. We have this privilege that people will give us the time of day. People will listen to us. And it's uh, my job as a cisgendered white gay man to raise up my fellow brothers and sisters of color, uh, my trans sisters, my trans brothers. If I'm not going to speak for them. I can't relate. I can't t tell their story. Only they can tell their story. So if you're in a situation where... Um, a couple of your colleagues or your brother-in-law at a wedding says something off color, call them out on it. Right. Call people out on this stuff. Right. I think that, I think that that's really the most important aspect is that, uh, you know, every single movement for change has benefited from the presence of allies that didn't particularly share the identity of the oppressed group, but that shared the thirst for social justice and um, sometimes in certain environments, it's a lot less dangerous for a straight ally to say, to something, say something, to correct something, to react to something that it is for a vulnerable person to do it. As it is, I think, sometimes really important 
that uh, a white male speak out against violence against women or mm -hmm. violence against people of color and racism. Those things are really important. And it's not just the job of the affected community to affect change, but it's the mm -hmm. responsibility of all of us to do that. Very exactly. well said. I would also say, too, to parents of children, raise your children to be um, allies, but to, just to, to be socially responsible and to understand what all this means and to understand their privilege and how we stand up for, yeah. for people. And, how, you know, I know that this was something I obviously, uh, you know, being in this, in the sexuality industry community and, and knowing all, all this stuff, I was very sensitive to that. And I wanted my kids to, uh, to be allies. And I, I know I had one daughter who actually started a GSA in her school because there wasn't one. And I asked her, I said, is there a GSA in your school? I said, no, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll start one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that was one way. But even when they were little, little, when they would hear people say, that's so gay, it was like they would call people out on that. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, is that a bad word? Like, what are you trying to say here? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about making even kids sensitive to that. And in our sex education curriculum, they do talk about this a little bit more now. So yes. that's a good thing as yes. well. I also think that, you know, for parents who are listening, that their children will be born incorporating gender and sexual diversity in every family, in every neighborhood, in every community, yeah. in every ethnicity. And you may not be aware of it at the time, but you're correcting people or providing accurate information or reacting to prejudice might just end up saving the life of your own child. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, coming up, I want to talk to you. We're going to talk about Tales of the City, uh, a Netflix uh, show, which I absolutely loved with a lot of LGBT, well, it was really LGBTQ themed. Uh, but it was great because of the multiple generations that were depicted. And so we're, we've got two generations here that we'll talk to. This is Passion on CJAD 800. Anyone see Tales of the City? It's a, a great uh, drama miniseries that's playing on Netflix right now, but it it is a readaptation or a remake, really, of uh, the an original that was, was it in the 90s? So you guys, uh, Bill and, and uh, Charles, did you see? Yes, um, it was actually based on the um, weekly columns of a journalist named Armistead Mopan, who wrote in the San Francisco Examiner, I think it was, and he wrote the emerging about the emerging gay life in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, and started this weekly column and created these characters to embody sort of what was happening in, in, in the effervescence of that particular epic or era. And, um, and then it was turned into a series on PBS, uh, which was very popular and um, sort of brought gay life out into the open in a way that it had not been before, right. at least in television. Mm -hmm. and then, Did you find it accurate in terms of historically? And I mean, they... Yeah, yes, I think so. I think it embodied what was happening in the era, um, you know, as much as TV does in, 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 in with, you know, its advantages and disadvantages. But um, it was very... Well, in those days, anything that had a gay character on a TV was followed by every LGBT person that you know knew yeah, what was going on day, because there were the so truth. few representations. <laughs> you go to soap. a movie. Yeah, soap was the soap. first. Yes, yeah, soap was the first. I remember that. But um, one thing that I love about Tales of the City is that in telling this story of all these 
characters at uh, Bur- uh, what Barbary, is it? Lane. Barbary Lane. Um, they go they go back in history, right? Mm-hmm. They go back, and that's where I found the history. Uh, I, I found it pretty accurate, a depiction of everything that the, the main character, Anna, went through and mm-hmm. how she arrived and all the issues and the raids. and the. So I thought it was brilliantly done. And it really, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and this new Netflix, uh, not necessarily a remake, but sort of like a sequel, a continuation of these stories uh, has sort of been updated in terms of queer storytelling so you have trans characters of color you have uh gay men who are in a relationship one's hiv positive the other is not you have all of these fairly accurate representations of members of the queer community that is not just you know the one that you see on the cover of you know any gay magazine that you find and uh the showrunner of the current one lauren uh, morelli who was formerly a writer on the netflix show orange is the new black uh, late in life queer, realized she was queer at around 30, married one of the actors, is now the showrunner of this. Uh, so she created the story. She did. She, she, she has picked it up and okay. sort of ran with it in terms of uh, this updated version. Uh, the writer room, entirely queer. She really wanted to make sure that these stories were coming from within, coming from the minds of queer people who experienced this uh coming from how we wanted to tackle or they wanted to tackle rather i wish i was in the writer's room please hire me lauren um (laughs) to tackle these issues that we as queer people don't necessarily talk about and it's a show that's not necessarily for a queer audience or no it was for anybody you're listening you're watching and you're learning and i loved i just thought it was brilliantly acted never mind the content of it, it was brilliantly yeah. acted. I bet you there's a whole lot more sex in the new one than in the original. <laughs> and boy, is it accurate. There's, there, oh, really? there's quite wow. a bit of sexuality bit. in it. Yeah, And I, I don't mean... mind the actors you know, doing it. But um, uh, yeah, some of the I'm ways sure that... the original uh, did not have that. <laughs> some of the ways that Lauren actually took... It was PBS. Took... Yeah, I know. Exactly. It was, yeah, well, well okay. <laughs> uh, one of the ways that Lauren actually took... Uh, the the reins in terms of retelling the story of Tales of the City is that uh, Olympia Dukakis' uh, Dukakis's character in the show is a trans woman, and uh, Olympia Dukakis is actually a cisgendered woman, and how she was able to sort of take responsibility within this new adaptation of this is that there is a flashback episode, as you mentioned, and they cast trans women as trans women okay, in order right. to all of them, yeah, in give there. them jobs right. in order to properly represent. So there was a scene, we were talking about this off air, but there was a scene there where a whole bunch of guys, are a gay men, are having dinner together. And they, uh, one of the characters who's older has a much younger um, boyfriend mm-hmm. and who's, who's there at dinner. And you see the difference in experiences from that generation. And maybe you want to describe that scene. Yeah, uh, for Charles. sure. So um, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a generation of gay men who uh, lived through the uh, late 70s and lived through the 80s and were exposed to the um, AIDS crisis and were exposed to having going to f- like four funerals every week. And around the dinner conversation, they were casually mentioning a story where a transphobic slur was mentioned. And the younger gay man brought it up saying, hey, we don't really say that anymore. To which the argument turn of saying your generation is so sensitive, why, why are you policing me at a gay dinner party? Like we can just right. you you have no idea what we went through, and there's this sort of cognitive dissonance between the younger generation of gay men in this situation and the older generation of gay men, whereas this huge trauma that 
I myself as a gay man won't ne- will never understand because I never have lived through that and I will hopefully knock on will never experience such a trauma and it could be c- compared to uh, people who survived the Holocaust and passing on this uh, trauma this mm-hmm. trauma this epigenetic trauma meaning you pass it down from generation to generation to generation and as queer people usually don't have kin blood kin of their own this trauma is just not fully trans. Uh, right. transported. Bill, what do you think? You you've got lots to say about this. Um, oh, I was I was actually just thinking back as as you both were speaking about what the, what that time was like, and um, you know you couldn't go out, you couldn't go out in Montreal anywhere socially. And at that point, you know we're talking about the village building itself up in the East End without seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of dying men, <sighs> always anywhere you went. Young men with canes, uh, you know, men that you knew had months left. And uh, it's a very hard period to go back to. And I think for a lot of us, I remember I did a a session in Ottawa um, with um, a group of older gay men a couple of months back. And we were talking about that. And all of a sudden, everybody in the group was just crying. And, you know, because everybody had lost multiple people. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I wrote a book a few years back about um, social work and HIV and in which um, I interviewed uh, a few people around their losses. And uh, you know, one of the persons said, I feel like I survived the destruction of the dinosaurs and I'm mm-hmm. the only one left. Oof. All my friends are gone. And thank God no one will go through that again. Yeah. You know, that period is over. Right. And but talk about but you know the trauma like you were saying off air like you must might have seen like hundreds five, of people like yeah. hundreds of people you knew yes. die of this and the trauma and the intense fear of going out and even being sexual when you're yes. faced with all of this that this generation just they have no clue no and thank heavens yeah thank heavens they don't you know but I think at some point. It, we don't want these stories to be lost either. Exactly. Um, because there is there, something horrible happened, and we lost lots of people. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, on that sad note, uh, Pride Parade yes. in August. So it's we're happening. very excited. Yes. August uh, 18th, I 18th, think, I right? believe. I'm also performing with uh, Toronto Winter on August 14th at the Being Britney Cabaret Show at the uh, Casino Tent. So come check that out. Oh, fun. So Great. that whole week ahead before the 18th is Pride Week here in Montreal. So there's lots of events. But we're going to be connecting uh, together before Pride, like during that week. So 100%. we'll let uh, our listeners know more about that. Thank you all so much. Thank you guys for being Great. here. Always Anytime. love having you. Uh, thank you for spending your time with us. Thanks to our uh, Aaron Lakoff, our technical producer tonight. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening, and remember to live your life with passion.